we are kicking off a brand new series this month called Friendology. Um, and yes, that's, that's not a word. It's what we like to do around here, make up words all the time. But what we're talking about in this month is what it looks like to make and to be in deep, robust friendships. Not surface level friendships, not functional friendships, but to truly be and be a part of deep, true friendships with other. And hopefully we'll take a thoughtful and theological approach to this, um, something that'll challenge us to uh, be the friend that we are looking for. And I don't know if you guys can agree with this, but making friends as an adult, it's awkward, right? It's really hard. And we're living in a time where there's so many shallow and functional relationships and connections that often we can just Make, make a substitution thinking that that's the real thing, but it's not. And we have a ton of these shallow functional relationships, right? Like digital friendships, you know, the people that you follow online and maybe they follow you and you like what they say on the highlights of their day, or maybe you're, you're like friends with an influencer, but trust me, they're really not your friend. They're trying to get you to buy a Stanley mug or something like that. I don't know, but like, it's, that's really what it is. You think that that's friendship, but it's really not. And we basically just comment on the highlights of their life because they don't share anything other than the highlights. And if they do share a low light of their life, it's in a perfect light to make them look like the hero, but I'll move off of that. But we have lots of digital friendships. We're friends online. We have transactional friendships. It's networking where there are friendships where someone's trying to get something from you or you're trying to get something from them. And it just makes sense for your work that you're friends, but that's transactional. We have a lot of one-dimensional friendships today. Uh, I, have, I have friends where we just talk about sports, right? Or maybe you have friends from high school, and the only thing you ever talk about was, hey, remember third period chemistry? <laughs> oh, that was crazy. We're like, they're still talking about Friday night in the football game, that one game when they had the big play. They're still only talking about that. I have a friend from college that straight up, the only thing we ever text about is our love for the band U2. And so we'll go years without speaking to each other, but when U2 goes on tour, we'll become friends again, basically. This dude has no idea even have kids. It's the funniest thing. <laughs> like, knows nothing about Bridgeway or anything. We just talk about you two. It's ridiculous, though. One-dimensional friendships. Maybe you have them. And, you know, it's awkward to make friends as an adult. Like, you consider, like, how do you, like, ask them out on a friend date? Uh, you, you don't want to, like, go to a movie because you won't talk at all. Uh, you don't want to, like, go to Indianapolis because it's too much of a drive and there would be a lot of opportunity for awkward silence and talking. But then I think maybe we'll just listen to music. And then the other part of my brain goes, but maybe he won't like the music that I like. And then we're going to have to talk. And this is going to be a terrible thing. Am I the only one that maybe overthinks making friends as an adult? Another reason why it's so awkward and so hard to have real deep friendships as an adult is what I like to call the I'm from here lie. I'm from here. Because um, I'm, I'm from Howard County, from Kokomo. I've been here my whole life, and as I know many of you guys are as well. And uh, it, it's this interesting thing, because you're like, I don't need more friends. I've got tons of friends. I've got friends from every different era of my life. I knew them from this sport. I knew them from that church. I knew them from this place of work, and all these different things. We're like, I don't need more friends. I'm from here. I've got friends everywhere. Well, that's a lie because the reality is we have a lot of acquaintances and those one-dimensional functional friendships with those people, but not people that we can really call upon when life hits the fan, <laughs> when things get rough and, and they're not calling us, we're not on their speed dial when their life gets rough and when it's painful for them as well. It's the I'm from here lie. I want to push against that. I want to push through that to transcend that because the reality is, you guys, that we need deep, robust, trust-filled friendships like we need water, like we need oxygen. I love what researcher and author Brene Brown says about our need for deep connections. She says this, 
that we are hardwired, we're created, designed to connect with others. It's what gives purpose and meaning to our lives. And without it, there is suffering. (laughs) There is pain without deep trust-filled connections and relationships. It gives us purpose. It gives meaning to our lives. I recently uh, saw a TED talk about the the longest run study, um, scientific study about what considers uh, to be the good life, a study on what makes people truly happy by Robert Waldinger. It's the Harvard study of adult development. And in this, it was taken, this is like a long course study here, 75 years. They tracked over 700 adults. They They tracked people that were graduates of Harvard and people from the poorest neighborhood on the south side of Boston. Over these years, they did blood draws, brain scans. They interviewed them and family members and had them fill out questions almost questionnaires almost every single month. And the clearest findings from this study were fascinating. What makes the good life? What makes happiness? This is what they found here in findings from the 75-year uh, Harvard study of adult development. The first one was this, that social connections are good for our health, our physical health, and loneliness kills us. Isolation and loneliness and a lack of uh, those robust connections They kill us physically. People don't live as long, like point blank. They don't live as long when they're alone. And social connections help people live longer. But not only that, the second finding was this. It's not the number of friends that you have, but it's the quality of those relationships that matter. It's not the width of how many people you know or those you know, internet friends or those social media functional networking friends. It's not the width. It's the depth of those relationships. It's how many people have refrigerator rights in your home, how many people know you and the worst things about you and the best things about you, who you really are. That's what really matters. And then lastly, I found this fascinating, that good relationships protect not only our bodies, our physical health, but our brains too. That our brains stop to develop, our, our brains actually um, shrink down in their capacity and early onset things happen and our memories fade when we don't have people to share our lives with. It's almost as if Brene Brown was onto something. It says that you were hardwired, you were created for not independence, but interdependence with other people in relationships. And not only that, but you know I'm going to bring in the whole, like, Jesus Bible thing, because look where we are, right? But in a thriving spiritual life, it's not a solo sport at all. I love what John Wesley, the founder of Methodism and the Wesleyan Church, what John Wesley says about this. He says, you must find companions or make them. The Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion. I love that. The Bible knows nothing of a solitary religion. Do you guys know that in the New Testament, whenever we read the word you, Y-O-U, and there's like a directive or a command to you, should, you, shall, all that kind of things, it's actually you, plural. Actually, in our New Testament, every single time, it's y'all. Some of you guys are like, I'm going to start reading my Bible now. They're speaking my WWKI language. It's y'all, because the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. You can't do the spiritual life alone. No one can. And here's the good news. You weren't created to. 
And in a time of podcast and online church and worship music on demand, no podcast, no online church, not even just attending a church service and then jetting out the door without connecting with others will get you where you want to go because you need relationships. And this month, we're diving into what it looks like to grow our friend muscles, what it looks like to be the friend that we're looking for when we're looking for a friend, and what it looks like to connect with others in a robust way, in a way that's strong and not shallow. But we got to ask the question, like, why is this a problem? Like, aren't we living in the most connected time in human history because of these supercomputers that go in our pockets, right? Like with social media, like we are accessible and connected with others, it seems like never before because of our smartphones. I just read some really depressing and maybe some condemning phone usage stats this week that on average, Americans check their phone 221 times a day every 4.3 minutes, which means that some of you guys have checked your phone 2.3 times since I started this sermon. That's okay there. Uh, we check them at work. We check them at home. We, like, what did we even do when we went to the bathroom without our cell phones, right? Like, it's a crazy thing like, to think about that because it's such an integral part of our rhythms of life. And just for an example here to like, talk about a relationship with these, everybody take out your phones like this is a permission a pastor is telling you take out your phone in church and some of you are like I've been waiting my whole life for this take out your phone okay how many of you guys like love your phone just raise your phone up in the air if you love your phone you love the model you love the way it connects you to different things you love the way that it helps you in your work raise your phones up anybody we got some people here love love your phones all right put it down how many of you guys hate your phones like completely hate these devices, hate what they've done to you. You hate your phones. You wish you could go back to Oregon Trail and die from dysentery so you don't have to like walk around with these monstrous things in your pockets, right? Some of you like that. But let me ask you this. I think this might be where most of us are. How many of you guys love and hate your phones? We love them and we hate them. Yeah, this is where most of us are. We have complicated relationships with these things. And I want to tell you who to blame. Because we can all blame this guy by the name of Marty Cooper. <laughs> Marty Cooper. This is a guy who actually developed the very first mobile phone. Anybody have this phone, by the way, the brick? You guys were early adopters on that phone. I tell you, this did not fit in your pocket at all. It did not hold my Dave Matthews Band live albums at all. I don't know what he was even doing with this thing. But anyway, this is Marty Cooper, and he was like drawn by this fascinating question. It's a question that led us down a rabbit hole uh, that maybe we wouldn't have actually wanted to go down. Uh, it's like that question in Jurassic Park. You know, like, we were so concerned if they could do this to dinosaurs, they never stopped and asked, should we? This is the question that Marty... Cooper asked that changed everything. Why is it that when we want to call and talk to a person, we have to call a place? Right? Why is it that when I want to talk to somebody, I have to like call a place to get a hold of them? I heard somebody say once that 75% of all the Brady Bunch episodes and all the problems in the Brady Bunch would have been solved if both people had cell phones. Because <laughs> I just can't get a hold of them, right? But maybe that wasn't all such a bad thing at all. Because I think this is the reality. You and I are living in a time where we are so accessible to so many people. We're accessible like never before. But I think we're less and less available than ever before as well. We're so accessible, but we're not truly available to others and to those 
powerful, trust-filled relationships. And there's a big difference between accessible and available. Um, I read a story a couple weeks ago, back in 2017, there was Hurricane Harvey that flooded and did a ton of damage in Houston, Texas. And there was a woman who was in her garage, trapped in her garage with her husband, her disabled uncle, and three dogs. And she immediately, when she saw the water start coming into their garage during this hurricane, called 911. And 911 was accessible. They picked up immediately and said, we're gonna send somebody right there. 30 minutes passed, the water went up to their ankles, nobody had come, an hour had passed, it went up to her chest, I mean, up to her waist, and then two hours had passed, it was up to their chests, and nobody had come. They actually reached out to an ABC News affiliate in Houston, and they came and rescued them, so if you're looking for one good thing that cable news has done for society, here it is right there. 911 was accessible, but they were not available to actually do the work to get there. And I think that we're living in a time where we are accessible like never before, but we're less and less available to each other in friendships. I mean, listen to this. In 1985, people on average had three uh, different friends in their lives that they would consider confidants that they could call upon at any time and they can be real with and share their deep, dark, heavy stuff that they're carrying in their life. In 1985, people had three of those. Today, on average, people have two, and 25% of all respondents had zero people that they could actually call upon as confidants, that people were not available. Our social lives, you guys, have changed from the pandemic, and it was even changing before the pandemic. I mean, hanging out with friends in person has declined 70% since the early 2000s. Like, the time that we hang out with friends outside of work has declined 70% since 2002. In 2002, people were, on average, spending eight hours a week with friends outside of work. Some of you guys that are introverts are like, eight hours a week, oh, I can't imagine that. And then in 2012, it was going down six and a half hours a week, people just hanging out socially with friends in 2012. In 2022, the last time there was a study on Americans and our social behaviors, it's down to two and a half hours a week. From eight hours to two and a half hours a week in the course of 20 years. Ourselves, we are not available to others. And some of you are still thinking about hanging out with people two and a half hours a week every week, and you're like, that's way too much for me. And that's the problem. <laughs> It's the thing that we truly need. And I don't need to like go far into this, but like Gen Z, the um, teenagers, middle schoolers, high schoolers today, 25% of them who are the most connected, accessible generation of all time because of social media and their phones, they're struggling with levels of clinical depression that we've never seen before in America and the highest suicide rate that any generation has ever experienced because they're accessible, but they're not available and they're not having those deep friendships. We've got to move from just simply accessible to available if we want to grow our friend muscles, if we want to have the good life. I want to take us to a story in the Gospels uh, today, which are these biographies of Jesus of Nazareth's life, um, where we see a powerful example of availability that should inspire us, that should open up our imaginations to a different way to walk as humans. Um, but I want to start here. Gospel of Mark is where we're going to be. Mark was actually um, a friend of Peter who was an eyewitness to all of these things of Jesus' life because Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, we are introduced to Jesus. He steps onto the scene in human history at 30 years old, and he says some bold words. It says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, this gospel, that he's the king, and there's a new kingdom on the rise. 
And he says that it's available to people. And the kingdom of God is not a place that you go, but it's this reality of living life in rhythm with God and the order and the way that God wants things to go. And he says that it's available to everyone if you repent and turn and believe a new king is here. So Mark chapter one, you see him perform some miracles and announce this, that kingdom was at hand. And then Mark chapter two, we hear that he's teaching about the ways of the kingdom and it's drawing crowds from all over the place. That's where I want us to pick up is Mark chapter two, verse one, Jesus is teaching in a home. We're told this, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Now, Jesus was from Nazareth, but we're told many different ways in the Gospels that he made his home base in Capernaum. That's where he spent most of his ministry time. But it's actually interesting. I was reading a commentator on Friday, a scholar who said that he probably like lived in Capernaum. Like when we're told the people heard that he had come home, like he probably was staying at his mother Mary's house with his half siblings in the home that Jesus would crash at when he was in Capernaum. So he's coming home uh, and then we're told this, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door and he preached the word to them. Now Jesus was a Jewish rabbi and it was very common for Jewish rabbis to go around into communities and come into homes and preach um, these messages and teach these incredible things and then there would be crowds gathered. But this is interesting because Jesus is on his home turf. This is like when you're on like a road trip and you come home for a homestand, he's in Capernaum. And then as the scholar that I was reading said, that he's probably coming home and he's in the actual home that he lives in. And this is where this story takes place, which brings lots of cool color to the story as we uncover it together. But we're told this, that he is gathered this huge crowd and it think people are gathered in such large numbers there. But the home that he's in, um, it's not maybe what you're picturing. It's, it's actually what's called an insula. And here is an artist depiction of a Galilean insula in the first century. So there's that open courtyard concept in the middle. And then you see like, the, the roof line that looks like it's straw. And then you see all these different little rooms inside of it. You see in the ancient world, when you got married, you didn't like just move with your spouse to a different part of town or you leave town for work. Uh, you actually stayed in the home of your mother and father-in-law and you built a room onto their home. This takes everybody loves Raymond to the next level, doesn't it? This takes mother-in-law suite to the next level, doesn't it, right? And my mother-in-law's in the room, so the jokes end here. <sighs> but you see, you would prepare and make a room in this insula. It was this extended family commune-style home, and this is where Jesus is teaching, and we're told that there's such a large group gathered, people poking through the, poking through the windows and every nook and cranny of the house. We want to hear about Jesus because he's teaching with a different authority, a different message that was bringing hope to the people. And then we're told this in the very next verse, not everybody was there that wanted to be there. Some men came to the home, to the insula, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. We're introduced to four friends and their fifth friend, a paralyzed man. Now, to be paralyzed in the first century basically meant that you were on the outside of God, that you were on the outside of people, that you were on the outside looking in. In the first century, to be a paralyzed person, there was this stigma that if you had a physical ailment, it meant that you were spiritually broken. Or even worse, maybe your parents or some other person in your family had sinned against God, and now you're cursed and you're carrying that in your body. 
And because of that, a paralyzed man was considered unclean. You weren't supposed to talk to him. You weren't supposed to be around him because they were cursed. But not only that, a paralyzed man, we're told, uh, was uh, carried on a mat. I want just for a moment to consider that this man didn't just like lie on a mat all day, but he lived on a mat. He was living on this mat. He couldn't go to the bathroom. He couldn't dress himself. He couldn't feed himself. He was, his whole life was contained to this mat, which was just a sig- signal and a symbol that he was on the outside of God and other people. Imagine for a moment to live in the story, the aesthetics of that mat smelled awful. People retching as it came near, thinking that this man is awful. I don't want him to come near. But we're told that there are four guys that pick up this mat and they think, I've, we've got to get him to Jesus. We love him and we've heard about this Jesus guy and he's doing a different thing. We've got to get him to Jesus. So they carry him through the crowd, through Capernaum to get to this home. And then I can just only imagine the disappointment when they see that they were late to the party. They missed the opening band. They missed like the first four songs of the set. And it looks like they're not even going to be able to see the stage. They're not even going to see where Jesus is teaching in the house. And we're told this next. They... They could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, which you would imagine. They couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd. They might think, well, we just need to wait till the next rabbi comes to town. We need to wait on uh, another time. Maybe there'll be some other hope there, but no. Uh, we're told this, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. I imagine that when they looked at the crowd, there was one friend who was like the bad idea friend, the big idea friend. And I think there's one in like every friend group. Oh man, you guys, the thought bubbles just went off right now. You think about that one friend who's like, hey, just watch me. We'll be okay. We won't get caught. We won't go to jail. <laughs> like all those different kind of things, right? You're like that big idea, bad idea friend. Like there was a friend who's like, no, we're, we're going up. We're going up on the roof of the insula and we're gonna make an opening in the roof. Now, all this time, Jesus in the middle of teaching and I guess growing up, I always pictured that like they would do like one swift kick through the roof and it would just sort of open up and then they would just lower their buddy down. Uh, But the reality is that in an insula, it was a complex system of uh, straw and then clay and dried mud, straw, clay, dry mud, because it didn't want any water to come through. So it was a pretty elaborate system. So to dig through this meant that you were kicking, you were digging with your hands, you were using tools. This went on for probably 10 to 15 minutes. And all the while, Jesus, who's living in his own home, teaching in his own home, is like, what is going on above me? He's like, bro, keep it down. I'm in the middle of the prodigal son thing. It's going to blow people's minds. What are you doing? But the persistence to like get there and do that. And then when they actually dig through the roof, they've got to figure out a way to get their friend down. I like to picture that they made the hole and then nobody thought about how to lower their friend down until that moment where they're all kind of looking at each other. This is not in the text, but it's just what I imagine. Uh, how are we going to? And then there's an engineer mind friend who's like, I got a pulley system. I remember how to do this. And so they lower down their friend on the mat and drop him right in front of Jesus. After all that racket, after all that noise, the persistence, the work to be available to like put sweat equity in this for their friend. And I just keep thinking about how awkward it would be for Jesus, Right. And how's Jesus going to respond? Is Jesus going to scold them? I mean, again, is Jesus going to be mad because they're like, this is my mom's house, man. We didn't have insurance on this. What are you thinking? Like, what is going on here? And then we're told this. This is how Jesus responds. 
They lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Son, your sins are forgiven. To which the paralyzed man probably looked at Jesus and said, that's not what I'm here for. I am paralyzed. I don't really, the whole sin thing, what are we even talking about? And it's a fascinating conversation why Jesus responds in this way. Uh, and I think in a lot of ways, I mean, in one way, we can look at this. If this was Jesus' home that he was crashing in there, his mom and step, or his half-brothers lived in, uh, then I can imagine Jesus like, I forgive you for breaking my mom's roof. Maybe it's just on that level. Or maybe it's on a deeper level where Jesus knows the cultural stigmas around physical health and sins. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Just so the other people would hear that he's not broken spiritually, even if he's broken physically. Maybe, maybe Jesus is speaking to that deep-seated desire for reconciliation and restoration that goes way beyond our physical lives, but to how we see ourselves and how we see, how God sees us. And he speaks hope and restoration to him in this. Maybe that's what Jesus is doing when he says your sins are forgiven. But not only that, I think it's fascinating to me who moves the heart of Jesus in this passage. Notice it wasn't the paralyzed man's faith that did anything. Jesus says this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. There was something about the belief, the action, the grit, the availability of these friends that moved the heart of Jesus to where Jesus brought restoration to this paralyzed man. I love what pastor and author Andy Stanley says about friendship. He says this, that your friends will determine the quality and the direction of your life. Your friends will determine the quality of your life. And maybe you're like, okay, Joel, you showed me all those stats earlier. I guess I can get behind that. I understand that. But like in the direction of your life, like where your feet take you, your friends will determine that. And Jesus, in this moment, when he sees their faith, he responds and says, this man's sins are forgiven. Because he's saying, like, you're headed in a new direction, a new way now. If you want to know where you're going to end up in five to seven years, like, show me your friends. Show me where they're headed. Show me their aspirations, who they're following, what their goals look like, what their values look like, man. That's where you'll end up. That's where I'll end up. Because your friends and my friends will determine the quality and the direction of your life. So this goes on. And then there's this uh, aside in the conversation where the Pharisees are all honked off at Jesus because Jesus said that your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are like, only God can forgive sins. And they go back and forth. Jesus wins the argument. And to like put an explanation point on this in front of the Pharisees, in front of the crowd, Jesus speaks to the paralyzed man and says, I'll bring you full restoration, my friend. He says this, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So the paralyzed man got up. Like, that's three words. He got up. Can you imagine being in that insula in that moment when you see that? Don't let that pass. Like, he got up, and it would have freaked people out. This is a miracle. Sometimes we think that ancient people are, like, they're so dumb, they were seeing miracles all the time, and we don't believe that in the scientific age. Like, this freaked everybody out, as it would freak us out today, because this was a special moment of heaven meeting earth. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. 
Mark tells us this. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This amazed everyone. Because of the friend's faith (laughs) and their availability, their friend, their paralyzed friend was healed. Now, this amazed everyone. It's easy to say that the this highlighted there was the miracle. And yeah, that did amaze people, but but what if the, this also entails the faith, the passion, the grit, the love, the service, the availability, the sweat equity that these four friends put towards their buddy who'd been living his life on a mat? Man, that is astonishing as well. It leaves everybody amazed. So, back to our time in a season where we are just living in a society that is so accessible but less available than ever before, how do we get a different vision? How do we like put our feet on a different path so that we don't just settle at accessible but we move towards being available? And there's a few things I wanna challenge us all with, myself included. The first one is this, you and I, would it be possible that we could become available, to be available, to be interrupted? Like, isn't it true, like when I think about it, and like why I stay in that accessible zone, is the reason I like to stay there is because I don't like wanna become available because like my calendar's already too packed and I don't wanna be interrupted because it's gonna mess me off of my flow, my schedule, uh, my needs personally, and things that I have valued in this. And we stay in that accessible zone Um, as an excuse, because we don't want to be interrupted. (laughs) And it's an interesting thing about Jesus. Uh, Most accounts say that Jesus was interrupted from his path no less than 35 different times in the Gospels. 35 different times. He was headed somewhere, and then somebody else had a different plan. Or there was a divine appointment with someone who needed healing. Or he would sit, and he would let the religious leaders argue with him, and he would shut them down with, like, one sentence that was a question that didn't even answer the original question, but it blew everybody's mind. He was interrupted all the time. You guys, listen. Jesus lived at a pace and on a path that would over and over again be interrupted by people's needs, and so that beautiful things could flourish from those interruptions. Like, man, I shudder to think of all the times that beautiful stories, life-changing interactions, um, I went around because I didn't want to get interrupted. May we become available to others and live at a pace and a path to where we can be interrupted and we get to hear the beautiful stories that God tells through it. Next challenge for us to be available for the hard work of friendship. And you think about the friends in this story. They were carrying a mat through town, through crowds. They worked through breaking through an insular roof that took a long time. They were lowering rope in like a pulley system to get their friend down. It was a lot of hard work. It wasn't like easy. All of a sudden you just like walk right into it and it's perfect. And it's an interesting thing. I've been a pastor for 15 years and it's amazing when churches um, that I've been a part of, we talk about community, we talk about relationships and friendships. They're like, everybody loves the idea of community and would say, oh, I need community. I need, I'm in isolation. I need people. I need friendship. I need community. But there's a lot less people that actually realize that they have to sacrifice their independence <laughs> to be a part of that. And they have to walk willfully into interdependence and needing and belonging to each other And that's sometimes hard work. 
That means being available is a little less maybe me time and things for me and my vision and more for others and God's vision for my life to fit my calendar. And hear me in this, like true kingdom of God style community is more forged than found. True connection and kingdom of God friendship of interdependence, it's more forged than found. And sometimes it's found in diverse relationships where people, they might vote differently than you do or they listen to a different radio station or music than you do, different podcasts than you do. But there's more beauty in it. When we live our life with longer tables, with diverse people at the table than shorter, than just you know higher fences to block us up from other people. So be available for the hard work of friendship. And then lastly, challenge for us to be available to carry one another's mats. You think about all that that mat represented for that paralyzed man. It was his shame, it was his brokenness, it was his isolation, it was the dark and the heavy. Every single one of us are carrying something dark, and something heavy, something where we feel like it's just our lot in life and we feel like we've got to do it alone. But what's the mat that we can help carry for other people? Whether that be relational isolation or turmoil, financial uh, upside down turmoil, addiction, mental health issues, patterns of life that are leading to dysfunction. Here's the good news. You don't have to hide it. And you don't have to carry it on your own. But you have to bring it to the light so that others can carry it for you. You're not alone and you don't have to carry it alone. And hear me, your availability to help carry someone else's mat, there might be a miracle for that person on the other side. There might be a God-only God story on the other side, but you've got to be available to carry their mat. I, I, I read this a couple years ago. I read this Swedish proverb. See, the Swedes, they gave us more than Swedish fish. They gave us a great proverb. Here, check this out. Thanks for chuckling at that, by the way. Here it is. A shared joy is doubled, and a shared sorrow is halved. Isn't that good? And isn't it true that when we share a joy with someone, they just celebrate our win? Man, it's like so much better when people can celebrate with us, when they can jump for joy with us. That's a shared joy is doubled, but isn't it also true that that shared sorrow is halved when you can like be real with somebody about your dark, your heavy. And they can be like, man, that sucks. Which can I just say like, man, that sucks might be the most appropriate theological response sometimes without throwing Bible verses on it, sprinkling confetti on it. Man, that sucks. I said, shared sorrow is halved because we're not carrying it alone anymore. I have a couple groups of friends in my life that I see this play out with almost every single week. Uh, my wife and I are a part of a couple's table group. It's a group of friends that meet at the church on Monday nights. And just to be real with you, and I've told them this before, Monday is a really hard day for me because um, Sunday is just a lot of this. And uh, I love it, but I'm exhausted mentally and emotionally at the end of a Sunday. And, um, and so Mondays are hard. I call it my holy hangover, if you will. And uh, I'm just like, I, don't, I mean, if I like respond to three emails before noon, I killed it today, that kind of a thing sometimes. And then at the end of the day, we have um, our, some of our friends from our table group come to church and we have our kids in another room. And, and it's, it's hard for me to get up for it, but man, I've never regretted sitting around that table 
with these friends where we can just laugh so hard. Uh, they've all got little kids, and we've got little kids, and to hear other people talk about how hard it is for them, sometimes <laughs> it halves my sorrow. It halves like, the struggle of raising little kids. And then to see, like, some, sometimes they're just saying, like, it gets better, it changes, you know, and then it gets hard again, all those different kind of things. Uh, it's just so powerful in my life. And for us to be pulling for each other and praying for each other, I mean, some of them are in this service, and I'm trying not to make eye contact with them because um, it means so much to me. But that's what we need when we carry each other's mats. Um, I got another group I meet with almost every week, and it's a group from people uh, from multiple different churches around the community. And starting back in the summer of 2021, we started studying the Bible together and listening to this podcast. And uh, it's just amazing that now we've gone through the whole Bible and we're going back and learning things, which is so fun. Um, But it's just such a fun night. For an hour, hour and a half, we're like diving into the text and asking questions, interpreting, and bringing all these sources in. It's like a nerd stream. It's so great. And then, like, then, that's an hour, hour and a half half then for like two sometimes three hours we try to solve all the world's problems we get real about the hard things at home (laughs) we get real and we dream about what things can be for the future for our kids and faith and and man it's amazing i want that for everybody um and that's the reality of when we bring ourselves and our real selves to others what god can do and here at the church, like we have these uh, groups called table groups. Um, and I know so many of you guys are a part of them in our church. We have over 20 of them uh, that meet around our church. And we've got actually this slide here. Uh, if you want to take a step towards that direction. But I just want to tell you, like, this is one of the ways where friendships can be forged. And life-changing, trust-filled friendships can really develop. And, um, man, we want that for everybody. And we've got men's groups, women's groups, couples groups. Allison's actually going to be in the hallway at our Next Steps table if you want to talk to her about that. Or you can text the word table there. But if you're not in an intentional group of friends where you can be available for each other, man, this is a great step for you to take. And if you are in one, let's be consistent in showing up and leaning into interdependence and believing that it's the best way for us to live. My question for you is are you simply accessible or are you available? Are you stopping short of availability because it costs you something or are you leaning into this upside down way that God's called us to live of interdependence and belonging to one another? May we become what we truly need as we grow our friendship muscles. And may we be a community of people that are so connected and they love and serve and care for each other so much that everyone's amazed like they were in the story that we read today. Not because of the music and the lights or a guy or girl on stage preaching, but they're amazed about the way that they care for each other and they show up for each other. And that's a vision that I want our church to have way more than what happens on a stage. And maybe so.